This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, if you would. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we'll continue our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you're missing the message so far, you can always get caught up at our uh, website through our podcast. If you have the Hui Kala app downloaded on your phone, you click on today's message, and there's a button called Fill in Notes. You can click on that. It'll open up a web browser with all the notes for today, uh, allow you to follow along with all the scriptures that we have and things along those lines as well. Uh, that'll give you the opportunity to do that. Before we jump in today, I also want to recognize some special guests that we have us today. We have a group from First Baptist Church in Richardson, Texas. Folks, would you say uh, aloha to us? Welcome. Glad to have you guys here today. We also have a group visiting back here from the state of West Virginia. West Virginia group, would you say aloha to us? Before? Glad to have you guys with us. Love it. Glad to have you guys with us today. Uh, everybody else who's visiting on vacation, got some folks back here from Jacksonville, Florida, back here. And uh, be sure to say howdy to the folks around you, get to know folks. Here's the thing you might say, Hey, are you here on vacation? I say, No, I've been going to church here for six months. And that's okay, too. Uh, so just get to know people around you this morning. Uh, be sure to say howdy to, to folks around you. I did want to cover one thing right quick before we jump into today's message. Uh, I got a couple of questions this past week, so I just want to clarify a few different things about who we are as a church, is who we call a Baptist church. Uh, I'm going to give you really briefly, you don't have to take notes, just some thoughts to, to throw out there that wants you to be aware of five reasons why who we call a baptist church is not a southern baptist church because some people have said hey i'm watching the news this past week and there's some ugly stuff going on in nashville how does that affect us it doesn't affect us at all uh, it has nothing to do with this whatsoever uh, who we call a baptist church is not a southern baptist church now just because a church is not a, is a southern baptist church does not make them bad by any means whatsoever it's just not right for us that's all uh, there's a lot of good things that take place in a lot of good churches that are out there that are southern baptist churches so these guys are our brothers and sisters in christ and we are 110 percent for them uh, not bad in any stretch of the imagination, just not right for us. A couple reasons why. First of all, we are an autonomous church, and all the churches that would be part of a Southern Baptist con- Convention would be autonomous churches as well, and the fact that no one really has any headship over other churches. It's different from other denominational structures where they have the right to, to vote churches out or place uh, pastors in certain positions and things like that. Even the Southern Baptist Church is not like that because that's just not a biblical model. But when I say that we're an autonomous church, we don't need anybody to speak on our behalf. Uh, We don't need anybody to lobby Congress on our behalf. We don't need anybody to go on CNN or Fox News and represent us as a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Baptist church because we're autonomous. Uh, Jesus Christ speaks for us, and we speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. We don't need anybody that got elected to some position somewhere in some structure to some committee to speak on behalf of of Christianity or on behalf of Baptists. We speak for ourselves, and so for that reason, uh, we don't need any... uh, uh, someone to speak for us or to be a mouthpiece for us. Secondly, we don't need to add hierarchies and committees to the Great Commission. We've been told to go, win, baptize, teach. That's it. Uh, We don't need uh, to set up multiple structures and regional structures and and West Coast structures and then national structures and then different boards and committees and vote people and elect them in there to just grab your Bible, grab a stack of gospel tracts and go tell people about Jesus. That's all we got to do. And so we don't need to add complexity to the job that we already have. Because go, win, baptize, teach is very simple. We don't need groups of people to govern that, politicize that, uh, and and structure that for us. We're just going to go out and get the job done. Third, we don't need to politicize the kingdom. 
If you read anything that took place at the, uh, the gathering of the, Nash- the Southern Baptist Convention this past week in Nashville, there's a lot of political nonsense that's going on there. People aligning with different groups. And is this group uh, liberal? Is this group conservative? They come from this group over here that's more conservative than this group over here. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Uh, two, two years ago, um, Mike Pence spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention, and half of the delegates got up and walked out when the Vice President of the United States came to speak. Things like that are just an ugly look for Christians, and so we don't really need to politicize Christianity or politicize the kingdom. Uh, we don't need to choose sides. We're not identified based on who we voted for, what political party we affiliate with. We're identified by Jesus Christ himself. And so any attempt to shoehorn us, put us in a box, or put any other labels on us is not biblical, and we don't really need any part of it. So we don't want to politicize the kingdom anyway. Uh, next, we don't need to meet, discuss, and debate things that are very clear from Scripture. Uh, of the 45,000 or so Southern Baptist churches, about 15,000 sent uh, what are called messengers to the convention this past week to, to discuss, debate, and vote on different things like policy and, and, and bylaws and things like that, that that govern the Southern Baptist convention. Uh, some of the things that were on the, the docket for discussion this past week uh, were uh, how to deal with racism and what do we do with the critical race theory. We don't really need to discuss racism because the Bible's really clear on what it is. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. Uh, if you are a racist, you're in sin. You need to repent of it and you need to move on. Uh, if you don't want to repent of it, we have a great way to get you out of the church. It's called church discipline. We don't need to gather together. Uh, literally this past week, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably in excess of, of millions of dollars were spent for this meeting to discuss racism. We don't, just don't need to do it. Just the Bible is cut and dry. It's clear. Move on. Second thing that they wanted to discuss was... Um, female clergy uh, in the church should we ordain female pastors what do we do with churches that ordain female pastors if you took 10 seconds and read first timothy chapter 3 and titus chapter 1 you'll know that the bible makes no case whatsoever for any type of female pastors whatsoever the office of a pastor the office of a deacon are for men only according to the bible we don't need to get together and, and call it to a vote we don't need to hear your sides or how you feel about it we just need to obey the bible uh, the other thing that really took me by surprise was they wanted to discuss uh, how to deal with uh, sexual abuse in the church uh, this is really clear. If someone's a sexual abuse predator, you call the police on them and you have them locked up, period. You don't cover it up. You don't, don't get together a group and try to talk them through it and pray them through it. You call the cops and they need to be put in jail. How do we deal with the victims of sexual abuse? You love them, you encourage them, you surround them as the body of Christ, and you see them through that to the end. And one of the questions was, if a, a pastor is committed, uh, uh, has committed sexual assault on a church member, is he ever allowed to pastor again? And we're going to talk about that and discuss that. That's not even an option for, according to the Bible, uh, the office of a pastor should be blameless. He's to have a good testimony to the people within the church and w- outside of the church. If you've been com- committed sexual sin, you automatically have disqualified yourself from the pastor forever. The Bible is ridiculously clear on that. We don't have to get together and talk about these things. So again, I see people who came from all over the, the world to, to gather for one week to talk about things that really aren't an issue if you know the Bible. Final thought, uh, first of all, taking the spotlight off of winning the lost is to Jesus simply detracts from the mission. We got one job, go in, baptize, teach. To, to discuss, to have our attention taken off of anything else just uh, is a bad idea. Remember when I was a kid and I played baseball, I was terrible at baseball because I would get distracted really easily. And when I was at, up at bat, my dad always told me, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. From the second it leaves the pitcher's hand, keep your eye on the ball. When we focus on auxiliary things and forget the gospel, which is the ball, we, we completely strike out every single time. And you find churches today who want to end poverty, they want to end human trafficking, they want to end uh, hunger in third world nations, they want to, to improve literacy in inner city communities and things like that, but they've forgotten the gospel, you miss the whole boat. 
Uh, because if a kid can read and he ends up spending eternity separated from God in hell, we have completely and utterly failed our mission as a church. And so, again, we can't focus on auxiliary things and forget the most important thing, which is the Great Commission. And so, uh, for, for those reasons, I mean, you take a look, the average Baptist church in the United States last year baptized two people, less than two people. That's embarrassing. You say, well, l- last year was COVID. I don't care. We, our church baptized uh, 15 last year. We're a brand new church. The average church baptized two. That means for every church that baptized six, there were three churches that baptized zero. That's embarrassing. And so again, we're going to, to show up and talk about things that don't matter when you're not seeing people saved and baptized and added to the church. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has lost 2 million members uh, over the last 15 years. They've lost 435,000 uh, members in the last 12 months. They're hemorrhaging people. They're not reaching the lost. They're losing their teenagers. Uh, teenage baptism in Baptist churches last year was down 40%, which means it's teenagers are not being saved and baptized and discipled and growing in their faith. And we're going to talk about whether or not a pastor who's committed sexual uh, assault, who's a sexual predator, can be a pastor again. No, no, no. We're missing, we're missing the big picture. So again, not to say that Southern Baptist churches are our enemy because they're not. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're our allies. But it's just not a good fit for us because we've got one mission. Go, win, baptize, teach. And we've got to put all of our eggs in that basket. And if it detracts from going, winning, baptizing, and teaching people the gospel, it's taken away from the mission. So we just stay laser beam focused. So everything that happened that you read on the news about how the Southern Baptists are, are losing their you know, ability to influence and stuff like that, I don't care about that, and you shouldn't either. Oh, they made these decisions, don't care about that, doesn't matter. One of the things they did say is they want to abolish abortion in the United States. Hey, I'm for that, but was that ever really up for discussion? I mean, did we have to gather together and vote on that? Uh, so good things come out of it for sure, and we want to help our brothers and sisters in Christ to fulfill the Great Commission, but that's not just not a good fit for us. And if anybody else is part of a Southern Baptist church, that's great for them. Uh, it's just not right for us. And so some people have some questions, what does it mean for us? Nothing, we're just going to keep pushing on and try to live like Jesus. Good to go? You got questions? I'm your guy. Talk to me about it, uh, 100%. If you ever have questions about what's going on, what somebody else says, talk to me. I promise you, I'll lead you in the right direction. Philippians chapter 3. Now, the good stuff, the Bible. Ooh, love it. The book of Philippians is so incredibly rich. So the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Philippi. It was a church that he started from scratch uh, and at the beginning of his second missionary journey. He pastored it for a while. He moved on, and then about 10 or 11 years, he finds himself in prison, and he writes a letter back to them, and he, just a letter of encouragement. It's different from other letters that Paul had written. Paul uh, had wrote to the, to the church at Rome that he had never been to before. Just a lot of doctrinally rich things. He, he challenged them and rebuked them that they caused the name of the Lord to be blasphemed among unbelievers and challenged them to get, their, get some things straight. Here with the, uh, to the church at Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, scathing letters of rebuke, get your life right. He writes a book of Galatians to the churches at Galatia, a collection of churches, and he doesn't even give them a good greeting. He just goes immediately into, I am so disappointed that you've left the gospel. Shame on you. And so scathing letters. Philippians is different because it's a letter of joy. He's like, hey, you guys are doing great. Take it up a notch. You guys are really involved in the gospel work, and I want you to see you take it up to the next level. That's where we find ourselves in Philippians. Paul, at the beginning of Philippians, gives his pedigree of the religious works that he had done how he was a, a Jew of the Jew and a, a Hebrew of Hebrews and how he was one that uh, other people would look up to. He was a Pharisee and, and nobody kept the law like Paul kept the law. But here's what he said. I counted all that as a loss that I might win Christ. All the good works that I had done were worth a pile of manure compared to Jesus Christ. That's the word he uses is the word dung there in that, in that passage. It didn't amount to a hill of beans compared to Jesus Christ because Paul says... 
false religion cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save. And so he goes on and says, hey, I'm not, I'm not, uh, my righteousness isn't found in the law and keeping God's rules and regulations and guidelines. My righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, I really want to know Jesus. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be made like Jesus even unto his death. And so Paul really wants to, to know Jesus Christ. And he gets down to verse number 12, and he says this in verse 12, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 12. But not as though I had already attained or were already perfect. Hey, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. I haven't made it yet. I'm still working on trying to be like Jesus. But I follow after that I may apprehend that which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus let us therefore, as many be perfect, be thus minded. If any of you think any, if any other thing you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. As we take a look at uh, what Paul says here again, the important thing that he says from the get-go is just, hey, for everything that you might say about me, I haven't made it yet. Again, if we were to make a list of the top 10 Christians that we've ever known in all of world history, we'd probably put Paul probably in our top five for sure. I mean, the guy wrote the majority of the New Testament. You want to talk about a changed life. This is a guy who hated Jesus to a person who ended up giving his life for Jesus. I mean, you talk about a guy who knew Jesus. He knew the word. He gave us the word. The Holy Spirit used him to pen the majority of the New Testament. This is a guy who invested in churches, started churches with his own bare hands, raised up men. And you talk about a guy who can, can develop leaders. He brought Timothy along. He brought Titus along and gave them really a... a, a, a a letter, really, on a training manual on Christian manhood, First and Second Timothy and, and the book of Titus. And so you say, man, Paul is top-notch Christian. But I think Paul would say this, hey, guys, it's kind of embarrassing that you put me on that list because I don't deserve to be on there. Paul recognized where he stood with Jesus Christ, and he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul said, I'm probably the worst sinner that you know, and I don't, definitely don't deserve Jesus Christ. I don't be, deserve to be in a list like that. Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And so Paul says, hey, look, guys, I'm just trying to be more like Jesus myself. I haven't made it yet. And so again, lest we look at Paul as the picture perfect of everything that a Christian should be, Paul says, hey, I'm still in this process. I'm still on this journey myself growing in Christ-likeness. But Paul, he came to a realization of who Jesus was. He says, I really want to know Jesus and for you and I to grow in Christ-likeness and desire Christ-likeness, we have to recognize the disparity between who we are and who Jesus is. You've got to realize that there's a big, huge gap between Jesus and me. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I was very pompous and arrogant, and I said things like, well, I'm not that bad of a guy. I mean, when you're talking about people, like, I'm not perfect, but I'm not... I'm not, I, I, I'm not perfect, but I, uh, I could be better, I'm sure. Hey, nothing's really wrong with me. Nothing's really, uh, uh, I'm not that bad of a guy compared to this guy that I work with. I'm not that bad of a guy compared to this guy that I know, this guy that goes to our church. But when you realize who you are in light of who Jesus Christ is, you realize there's a big gap there. You realize that if Jesus Christ is the picture of perfection, I, on the opposite hand, am so far away from who Jesus Christ is, then I realize I got a little bit of work to do. 
Again, I can't challenge you to walk in Christ-likeness. I can't challenge you to change your life to be more like Jesus when you're willing to say, I think I'm okay. That growth is good for the new guy that just got saved over there. But I mean, I've been saved for like 20 years at this point. What does it matter? Oh, it matters a lot because you and I must grow in Christ-likeness. This, uh, this past week, I got to take a look at all the guys who uh, had uh, filled out our Father's Day forms that we had. We had guys in our church that have been saved for decades. Think about these guys uh, here have been saved in our church for more than 30 years. Roy Losey, Kaz Kostrabala, Dave Harvizut, Ron Grundy, Larry Gregory, John Stoker, your pastor. All these guys have been saved for over three decades. Four plus decades have been saved. Rick Barr, Tim Warner, Andy Curry, Russ Morgan, Coach Board, Ron Bird. 50 plus years. Terry Rotts and Jeff Jones. Look at that. Man, these guys have been saved for not a couple of years, not a couple of weeks, not a couple of decades, three decades plus. You go to any of these guys on the list and say, hey, man, have you made it yet? Every single one of them would say, no, I've got a long ways to go. Terry Rotts, been saved for 50 years. That's longer than I've been alive. Terry, you think you made it yet? You think you made it in Christ's likeness yet? Check it off the list, done with it? Still working on it, right? Five decades in, you say, well, when will we ever make it? Oh, when you see Jesus, it'll all be over then. But until then, we got growth to do. We got work to do. And you see, we have to change. And the change comes about by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we have to allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to diagnose our spiritual condition. (laughs) I love the Bible because the Bible allows me to identify where I'm at. It's, it's funny. Uh, when I'm flipping channels, sometimes I come across TBN and uh, Joel Osteen, you know, they hold their Bible up before they start with their motivational talk and says, I am who this book says I am. And, and just by the way, if you're not familiar with Joel Osteen, he's a rank heretic and is not a Christian. And so just put that out there. And it's just like, wait a minute. If you actually read this book, you would realize who you are. You're a sinner who's desperately in need of God's grace. You're not a good person who's just trying to live a little bit better life. You're not a good person who just needs to change a few things to be a little bit more like Jesus. You're not a good person who just needs the rough edges sanded off a little bit. You see, the world tells you that on the outside, you got this rough exterior, but the deeper that we dig inside your little heart, inside is a beautiful butterfly that's waiting to come out and stretch its wings. Deep inside of you is this person who, if we could get all the rough exterior off, all the, the hardening that the world's put on you, if we could get down to the core of you, that your heart is beautiful, and we just need to see more of you. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says the outside is as good as it gets. That the deeper that we peel the layers off like an onion, the more repugnant it gets as we get closer to our heart. That our heart is not sweet and beautiful. Our heart is corrupt and filthy and sick. And that when you peel back the layers, there's not a beautiful butterfly waiting to get out. There's pus and oozing nasty filth and disgust and sin. And you don't need to just make the outside look a little bit prettier. You need a whole person transplant. That's why the Bible says that when you are in Christ, you're a new creature, not a better version of your old self, The old person has to die so that Christ can live. So when we talk about pursuing sanctification, pursuing Christ-likeness, we're not talking about a better version of yourself. We're talking about you got to die so that Jesus Christ can live. That's your best self. 
how do I find that? The Word of God will guide you every single time. The Word of God will tell you that you're a sinner for all is sin and come short of the glory of God. The Bible will tell you that there's none righteous, no, not one. I was talking with a guy several years ago, and he said, I, I think I'm a good person. I don't know that I've ever actually done anything wrong. I said, well, you have to agree that you've sinned. He goes, I don't know that I've ever sinned. <laughs> wow, that's a new one for me. And so there's a, a man who has an awesome YouTube series called The Way of the Master called uh, Ray Comfort. He basically uses the Ten Commandments to share the gospel with people. And so, man, I, I adopted his, his playbook, and I said, has there ever been a time in your life where you've told a lie? And he said, well, everybody lies. It's not a sin. So what do you call somebody who's, who lies? You call them a liar. Have you ever taken in something that didn't belong to you? Have you ever stolen anything? And he says, no. I said, have you ever taken credit for something that you didn't actually do? And he goes, well, yeah, everybody does that. Well, when you take something that doesn't belong to you, what do you call that person? You call them a thief. So you're a lying thief, according to your own estimation. Have you ever used God's name as a curse word and said like, oh my, or coupled God's name together with a curse word before? Yeah, but I only do that when I get angry. The Bible calls that blasphemy. And so you're a lying, thieving blasphemer, according to the Bible. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever had sexual relationships outside of marriage before because Jesus said this, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already in your heart. So if you've ever looked at a woman with lust before, you've committed adultery. So by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer. And I said, thou shalt not kill. You ever killed anybody? He goes, no, finally one, I'm off the hook. <laughs> Hold on. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart and you call him an ugly name, Without cause, you've committed murder in your own heart. So according to Jesus, you've already committed murder as well. Lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous, murderer. And we're only got through five of the Ten Commandments. According to God's report card, how are you doing? He goes, well, according to what God says, I'm failing. Exactly. And Paul even said this, that the law was given to us not for righteousness sake, but to show us the depths of our sinfulness, to give us a list of things that we couldn't possibly accomplish on our own. So the Bible tells me that I am a sinner to the core. The Bible also tells me that there are consequences for my sin. The wages of sin is death. That because of my sin, because of your sin, we have earned ourselves a spot in hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. Because we've sinned, someone has to die. And you will die for your sin unless someone can die in your place. Now, I can't die for your sins because I have my own sin. This church couldn't forgive anybody's sin because churches don't forgive sin. There's not enough water in the world to wash your sin away. You owe God, and the only payment is death, and you can die, or someone who is perfect, who owes God nothing, can die in your place. Where would you find a person? Well, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. I was supposed to die, but Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to be punished, but Jesus was punished for me. I was supposed to endure the wrath of God, but Jesus endured the wrath of God in my place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died in my place so that I could be forgiven, so I could be declared righteous. 
And so while the Bible tells me I have sinned, I am in danger of God's wrath and and judgment, the Bible tells me that Jesus Christ has died for my sins. And if you would be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus would save you from your sins today. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, it's not a matter of joining this church or becoming a Baptist. It's not a matter of going through a class or catechism or any religious work like, uh, like, like baptism or anything like that. It's about knowing that you are, have, are a sinner before God, recognizing your sinful condition, confessing your sin before God, and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's it. We call that being born again. And you can't go to heaven unless you're saved. You can't go to heaven unless you're born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. You need to be saved. And friend, if there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved, let today be that day. And sometimes people will say, well, like, if I'm, if I'm saved, I don't think I, I'm struggling with that because I might sin again. I'll save you the trouble. You're going to sin again. But we're not talking about sanctification, which is Christ's likeness. We're talking about your salvation. Where will you spend eternity when you die? And you need to know for sure that you're saved. And friend, if you don't know for sure that you're saved, don't hit those double doors in the back until you make sure that Jesus Christ is not only your Lord, but he's also your Savior today. Best decision you'll ever make in your entire life. God adopts you into the family of God. Romans 5 says you were once an enemy of God. Now you're adopted into the family of God. Whenever you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and allows you to communicate with God in a way that you never could communicate with Him before. The Bible says that God gives you a new heart and a new mind and that now the spiritual things of God are able to be discerned by you because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you now. And the most incredible thing in the world happens. You're able to read the Word of God which for you will be interpreted by the Spirit of God, which then changes your heart to be like Jesus' heart. That's how this whole thing works. But here's, here's the disconnect sometimes. If I want to change to be like Jesus, I have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. He's the boss. I have to submit to the Word of God as authoritative in my life. And then I have to be willing to obey Jesus Christ. That's one of the, the, the troubling things that's taken place lately. Uh, Saddleback Church in California uh, is a Southern Baptist church. Uh, just ordained three female clergy as pastors of their church. And mind you, Saddleback Church has never been a bastion of biblical fidelity. But this just goes to show that they have completely and totally cast off the Bible as the authority for matters of faith and practice, and have now adopted rationalism and, and whatever way that they can use to rationalize what they want to do. And it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. And again, the Southern Baptist Convention, because they are, uh, allow churches to be autonomous, don't have the ability to disfellowship anyone or cut them out of the convention or anything like that. Basically, they just kind of throw their hands up and go, well, that's not really right. Yeah, I know. So for us, we look at that and say, hey, look, you want to stop following the Bible? then there's no end to that. But here's the problem for us as Christians. We, the, the goal is not to point fingers at other people's churches. Whatever they do with that, their pastor will stand before God and have to give an answer for that. That doesn't have any bearing on me whatsoever. But for you as a Christian, we often do the same thing. Well, I know what the Bible says. I don't really want to do that, though. We're willing to obey Jesus to the point where it's comfortable, but when it gets uncomfortable, that's when we want to be like, ah, I don't really know if the Bible is true. I don't know if the Bible has anything to say about that. I, uh, 
I was trying to share wisdom with a guy a couple of years ago that I realized it was just, he wanted to turn it into an argument. I I don't do arguments. He said, hey, do you think it's okay for Christians to smoke weed? No. Next. Well, show me a verse in the Bible where it says, thou shalt not smoke marijuana. Come on, man. Really? Just show me one verse and and I'll accept it. Okay. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you submit your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may receive what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <laughs> I don't say nothing about smoking weed. Bro, you missed it. You missed it. My body is an acceptable sacrifice. And so for him, what he wanted, he wanted to follow Jesus until it, it intersected with what he wanted to do. And then he wanted to make up his own rules from there. If you and I are willing to grow in Christ's likeness, we have to say the Bible and God's word is the final authority, period. I can't tell you the number of decisions I've made in my life that I don't like because the Bible says so. I can't even begin to explain that. But here's the problem. When I begin to make the rules, then I become Lord. When I become the arbiter of truth, I become God. And I'm not submitted to the authority of God himself. We take a look at growth. True growth begins with a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. You've got to be willing to be real with yourself. Allow God's word to examine you day by day. Allow God's word to have the final say in your life. And there comes a point in Christian maturity where you realize, I don't have all the answers I'm not where I want to be. There's some areas that I want to grow in. I had coffee with a guy this past week, and he began to talk with me about some areas that he wants to grow in Christ-likeness. He said, last week's message on sanctification hit me like a ton of bricks. He goes, here's the areas where I want to change. Good. And he set up a plan to change. I love it. But here's the thing. We weren't talking about big, huge, awful, egregious sin. He just said, hey, these are areas in my life that don't please the Lord, and I want to change it. And I love that heart because you realize I'm not where I want to be. He didn't say, well, I've come a lot farther than I was 10 years ago, so I think I'm okay. No, he recognized I'm not in a place that honors and pleases the Lord just yet, but I want to keep growing in Christ-likeness. It's important to understand that being like Jesus is a journey, not a destination. Again, this isn't something we get to check off our list and say, yeah, I think I made it. Hey, I think I'm I'm Christ-like now. I think I'm okay. It's a journey that we go on. If you take a look at Philippians chapter 3, Verse number uh, 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Hey, I realize I'm not yet where I need to be, and I want to grow, and it's not a matter of, of getting there. It's a matter of heading there. It's not a matter of being there. It's a matter of going there. Because you will walk in sanctification if you're a mature Christian for the rest of your life. You never just get there. For me, I've been walking with Jesus for two plus decades. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to grow. I'm still trying to to kill my old flesh and trying to be alive in Christ. Praise God, I'm not struggling with the same sin that I was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But I'm not perfect yet. I haven't made it yet. There's some areas in my life that I want to grow, that I want to do better, that I want to be more like Jesus Christ. Paul says, not as though I had already attained. Paul recognized that every victory and every trial is an opportunity for growth. 
Whether it's the good things or the bad things that have happened in my life, I trust it as part of God's process and growing me to be more like Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28 is an often quoted passage of Scripture, often used out of context and often used to provide hope when there's really no hope. Sometimes people say, well, you know what the Bible says, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. No, finish out the rest of the verse. All things work together for good for who? To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. There's, there's conditions on that promise. And so you tell an unbeliever, well, God works everything for good. Not for unbelievers, he doesn't. You talk to a Christian who's living in unrepentant, rebellious sin. God does not work every good for them because they're not loving God. You say, oh, they love God. They're just rebelling right now. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You don't get love without obedience. They go hand in hand. And so if you want to live in rebellion to God, you don't get to claim the promises of Romans 8.28. But again, then if we look at the Bible in context, which is what, how we read the Bible, we don't take a part of a verse that we really like and just put dots on the end because it makes us feel good. You read verse 29 in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you know what it says? Whom he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. That all things work together for good. And what's the purpose, verse 29, that you would be made like Jesus Christ? So you got victories. That victory, God's working for good. If you love him, if you're obeying him, he's working it for your good to make you like Jesus. That trial that you're going through, He's put that in your life to work it for good, to help you to be like Jesus. Again, because the goal for Christians is not just to get our ticket punched to heaven and sit back and wait for our number to be called. The goal for us as Christians, Jesus said this is life eternal, that they may know the one true God and his son whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is about knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, and being made like Jesus. That's what life is about. And so Paul saw all these things that he had gone through, even the false religion that he talked about in verses 5 through 8, of all the things he had tried to do to earn righteousness. And Paul says, hey, all those things that are behind was just part of my growth journey that I'm on. And so many times people get hung up in the past and allow uh, their past to dictate their future. But Paul says, hey, everything that I've gone through is just God doing his perfecting work in me. Take a look at verse number 12. Paul says, not as though I'd already attained we're either perfect, but I follow after that I may apprehend that for which I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. See, sanctification requires full commitment and maximum effort. Notice verse number 12, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after. The word follow after means to press on or to run after. Paul, Paul, if you read through Paul's epistles and his writings, he is a king of sports analogies. Uh, I can't imagine being around Paul because Paul, man, he must have enjoyed sports because he talks about fights and he talks about races and he talks about award ceremonies and things like that. Even when he's finishing off his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, I fought a good fight, I've run my race. Even in his closing statements, he's talking about death, he's talking about sports analogies. Here's no different when Paul says that I follow after. He says, I'm chasing after. I'm running after. What's he chasing after? He's chasing after Christ-likeness, sanctification. Just know this, a flippant obedience to the word and a casual commitment to Jesus will yield disappointing results 100% of the time. 
if you're just dipping your toe in Christianity to see if you're going to try this out for a little bit, just know this, you're going to be grossly disappointed with what you find. If you're just here because your wife told you to come here, because your mom keeps blowing up your phone asking if you found a church yet, and you just decided to show up to get people off your back, you'll be greatly disappointed with what you find. If you decide to follow Jesus only as far as it is comfortable or as far as you're willing to go, you'll be greatly disappointed with what you find. And look, I'm all for physical health and physical fitness and stuff like that, but look, if you go to the gym twice a month for 10 minutes and you get on the elliptical and you go as slow as you can while you're watching a TV show for twice a month for 10 minutes, you say, well, any movement's better than no movement. I would disagree with that. If you're going to sit home and watch Netflix and eat Oreo cookies and order pizza every night, just stay home. It's not doing you any good. Save your money on your gym membership, too. But if you're willing to commit to the process and not just showing up to the gym, but a healthy lifestyle, it's not a matter of, hey, I'm going to go to the gym a couple of times a month. It's a matter of, I'm going to change my life. Then you'll begin to see results. By the same token, if you just show up on Sunday mornings a couple of times, I'm just going to shoot you straight this morning, all right? You're wasting your time. If all you do is show up here twice a month for a couple hours and you expect massive changes in your life, you're going to be disappointed. You really are. Because Jesus doesn't want a casual commitment. Here's what I would tell you. I would go so far as to say this, and you might get mad at me for saying this, but I'm going to say this. If all you're ever going to do is just show up for a couple of hours, if that's all you're going to do, and you have no desire to ever grow, no desire to ever change, and this is just always who you're going to be, I'm going to tell you this, just stay home. You say, well, that's harsh. Here's what God says in his word. Read the book of Isaiah chapter 1. God says, your offerings make me sick. Just stop it. I don't want any more sacrifice. I don't want any more incense put on. It's repugnant. It makes me want to vomit because I know your heart. And this is, this is not your heart. Look, God doesn't want you to come and sing songs and say, just as I am, here I am, de desiring God's healing, desiring God to touch my life in a special way when you don't really mean it. Look, the songs we sing are songs of worship to God. It's not Christian karaoke where you're just singing words on the screen. Don't lie to God by saying things you don't really mean. And here's the thing. You might be on the fence trying to figure out if you want to follow Jesus or not. Please keep coming because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But if you never have any intention of changing and you just want to do what you want to do, God's not interested in that. And here's the thing. I'm doing you a favor because you're just going to be disappointed. Because when you don't follow God's roadmap for your life, you're going to be disappointed every single time. For the couple who comes in who wants to get marriage counseling, and they can't figure out why, they're Christians, but they can't just get it together, and I tell them you're not walking in the Spirit, well, yeah, I don't really want to do that. Do you have anything else? No. Because if you're not willing to do what God says, you're going to be disappointed. Of course your marriage is a wreck. You're walking in the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. It'll change your life. But so many times we're willing to follow God up to the point where it's comfortable. And anything past that is, gets uncomfortable. We don't want to do that. Look, if you're willing to just casually be obedient, it's not worth it. 
Keep your finger here in Philippians 3. We're going to come back in a second. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. I want you to see this, what Jesus says. Luke chapter 6. <laughs> Jesus is talking to a group of folks here in verse number, Luke chapter 6, verse number 46. Luke 6, 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and you do not the things which I say? You know what the word Lord means? It means master. To call Jesus Christ Lord identifies a relationship between you and Jesus. He is master, you are slave. And Jesus is kind of scratching his head going, why do you keep calling me Lord, but you're not listening to me? You don't do what I say. And it's so funny, you and I many times want Jesus Christ as Savior, but we don't want him as Lord. Oh, that's too hard. I want to make sure that I'm going to heaven. I want to make sure that I'm safe from hell. I want to make sure that my sin is forgiven. But actually, follow what he says. I don't really know about that. And Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. And here's what he goes on in verse number 47. He says, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, obedience. I'll show you who he's like. He's like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for the house was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man who without foundation built a house upon an earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. We teach our kids that song sometimes, don't we? The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And the rock on the house stood firm. Foolish man built his house upon the sand, house on the sand, house on the sand. Rains came tumbling down, and the house on the sand went. That's always fun when you're a kid. Like, and then we say, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the rock of the foundation, right? Now, again, the principle from the Bible, definitely true. Build your house on Jesus Christ. He's a firm foundation. We have Bible verses for that, for sure. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's not saying build your house upon me and you'll stand firm through the storm. He doesn't say build your house on me and your house will stand the test of time. What does he say here? He says obedience to me. That's the foundation. You want to hear what I say and not do it? You're building your house on sand. And so the difference is not whether or not we believe Jesus or, or love Jesus or, or put Jesus in our life or build our life on him. The difference in the foolish man and the wise man comes down to this one idea, obedience. That's it. So you want to go and do your own thing in opposition to the word of God. You want to go and live your life how you want to in rebellion to God. You're free to do that, but just know the first time the rains come, Great will be the destruction of your house. Look, I love you guys. That's why I'm trying to tell you. There's a good way to build your life, and it's to obey God's plans for your life. That'll change everything. And so Jesus says, hey, look, just do what I tell you to do, and everything will work itself out. So sanctification requires that you and I follow after Jesus, push hard. Christ-likeness requires a daily discipline. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. 
What do you do, Paul? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Notice he doesn't say, I forgot the things that happened in the past. He says, I'm forgetting. It's a present tense. We have to continually fight against our flesh. We have to continually forget what happened in the past and continually look forward to the future. It's a daily discipline. So many times Christians are hamstrung by their past failures. Look, our past failures are under the blood of Jesus Christ and they're an opportunity for you to grow. If you have a sinful past and you've repented of it, don't carry guilt and shame anymore. Jesus Christ put your guilt and shame to death. If you have a a past that you're embarrassed by, there's no shame for you because your shame was placed upon Christ. So for you, I want you to get this. If your past sin causes you to carry shame, you are robbing from the sacrifice that Christ made upon the cross because Christ already put your shame to death and to say, oh no, I want my shame back so that I can carry it myself. You don't have to. I was talking with somebody last week and they asked me a question. Hey, what of my testimony should I share and what should I not share? Talking about a, a sinful past. And I said, I, I grew up in, in, again, a Baptist church and well-meaning people, I'm sure, but they would bring in guys who were like, oh, I was a drug addict for 20 years. I was in a motorcycle gang and I watched a guy get beat within a half inch of his life with a tire iron. Somebody kicked over my motorcycle one time and we all jumped him. And talked for 45 minutes about his sinful lifestyle. And then the last five minutes, but Jesus changed everything. I put my faith and trust in him and you can too. Uh, let's pray, amen. It's just like, wait, we heard a 45-minute talk of the glorification of sin and like a three-minute closing thought about how Jesus turned it all around. We don't glorify past sin. We glorify the cross of Jesus Christ. I, Paul didn't lift up his sinful past. He would bring it out. He would say, hey, look, I was a persecutor of the church. And he says, it was the worst thing ever for me. Paul lists here his, his past where people would have rejoiced circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, uh, Pharisee of Pharisees. I persecuted the church, but all those things are an embarrassment to me. What I once counted a gain, I now count as a loss. What once I gloried in, now I count it as dung because I realized everything was mixed up because Christ is the supreme price. Paul got it right. So again, when we look at this, his past, Paul wasn't ashamed of his past. He was using it as an opportunity to teach others, hey, here's what Christ can bring you from. He didn't glory in past sin, but he gloried in the cross of Christ. But we also need to remember that our past victories are a building block for our future as well. Just like we can't live under the power of our past, we're held captive by the shame of our past, By the same token, we can't hang on to the victories from the past either. Tell me about your relationship with Christ. Oh, man, when I was in seventh grade, we had this Bible study. I was the leader of it. We were praying every day. Yeah, what have you done the last 20 years? Oh. Man, 2018, I read my whole Bible cover to cover. Okay, that was three years ago. What have you done lately? Oh, yeah, I haven't read the Bible much lately. Yeah. That doesn't work. When Paul says, I'm forgetting those things are in the past, he's forgetting his past failures, but he's also forgetting his past victories. 
Because the question that Jesus wants to know is, what have you done for me today? Past is in the past. Man, that's a launching pad for the future for sure. But we don't get to coast on our victories from the past. Oh, one time I was in a college, I had a group of guys around me that were reading the Bible and praying and texting back and forth and keeping each other accountable. Yeah, what have you done in the last five years? Do you have a group of guys like that that you're accountable to now? If not, fix it. So again, you have to get the idea that sanctification is not something where we can just kind of kick it in neutral and coast for a bit. Because when we drift, we drift farther away from Christ, not closer to Christ. It requires intentionality on our part. Verse number 14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so while God has called us to salvation, full knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's the true prize. I've heard this, this passage preached from Philippians chapter 3 several times growing up as a kid, and even as an adult sometimes as well. And probably 50-50, half the time I've heard people say that the prize is heaven. That we're pressing forward until we actually get to heaven. But the problem with that idea is this. If heaven is the prize, then you and I can win it. But we can't win heaven. Eternal life is the gift of God that's given to us by grace, not by anything that we've done, not of works lest we should boast. So the prize is not heaven that we're trying really hard and pushing really hard so that we can get to heaven. No, you've been given eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you're a child of God, it's a gift. The prize that you press towards is knowing Jesus and being made like Jesus. Christ-likeness is the prize. And so Paul says, with every fiber of my being, I push forward like a, like a sprinter towards the finish line. Pressing forward towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pushing hard with every fiber of my being to make, be made like Jesus Christ. That's what God wants for you. I want you to be like Jesus. And so, again, Jesus says in John 17, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the one only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus is the prize. And pursuing Jesus is the prize. And again, pursuit requires that you actually do something. Not sit back and relax and hope that it comes to you. And again, if your only goal of being made like Jesus Christ is to show up here twice a month for a couple of hours, you miss the boat. It requires daily discipline. You'll need to wake up tomorrow and put yourself to death and say, I don't want to live today. I only want Jesus to live through me. You'll have to spend time in God's word. You'll have to be honest with your own heart condition of what's sin, what the Bible calls sin. It's a daily discipline in your life. And you and I as Christians need to stop saying things like, oh, that's just a bad habit that I picked up along the way. Call it what the Bible calls it. It calls it sin. Well, I know I really don't share my faith that much. I'm kind of uncomfortable doing that because I'm more of an introvert. You don't care about the lost. It's a sin. Stop making excuses for things that the Bible calls sin. And own up. Be a big boy. Be a big girl. Put your big boy pants on and say, hey, I'm willing to take ownership for my Christian growth from here on out because that's what God expects of me because Jesus is the prize. Not a new car or a nice house or better education for my kids or great vacation. That's not the prize. The prize is Jesus. And again, if you're pursuing anything in life other than Jesus, you'll be greatly disappointed. Final thought this morning, pursuing Christ-like is better with others. 
Pursuing Christ-likeness is better with others. Take a look at verse number 15. Let us therefore as many be perfect. The word perfect doesn't mean without sin. It means mature, complete. Many of us, as be mature, be thus-minded. If you think otherwise, the Bible says God will reveal it to you. Hey, everybody who considers himself a mature Christian, let's have this mind. I'm going to throw off everything that keeps me from Christ's likeness. I'm going to pursue Jesus Christ at all costs. I'm going to do things that are uncomfortable. I'm going to cut off parts of me that should have died a long time ago. I'm going to repent of sin that I've been harboring and been too kind to for far too long. And I'm going to pursue Jesus Christ at all costs. Because sanctification is a journey undertaken by mature Christians. You see, here's the thing. When a new Christian gets saved, the Bible says that they're a babe in Christ. They're a little bitty baby. And they require a little bit of milk. They can't eat the full meat of the word yet. They desire milk. And generally, a new Christian is like this. They're like, hey, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. Man, it's a good feeling. That sin is off my back. I feel like a weight's been lifted. I'm a new creature in Christ. Man, I love coming to church. You guys are awesome. Such nice guys here. Man, I got a small group that I'm a part of. And like, we went over to their house and played ping pong and ate s'mores. I love this. This is awesome. Eh, Christian life is a little bit deeper than that, right? Now, new Christian, that's what they see, and then that's exciting for them. Good. Let's teach you what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus. That's called discipleship. We place a high importance of discipleship here at Huicala. I want to teach you what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. It's not ping pong and s'mores all the times. Many times it's tears. Many times it's struggle against sin. Many times it's a hatred of my own sinful condition and a feeling like I'm trapped. But Jesus Christ provides freedom. Jesus Christ wants us to grow and be made more like him. And he's given you people around you to help you to grow in that process. Sanctification, this desire that I want myself to die, that's a mature process. <laughs> I met with a guy this past week. We had a great conversation and he said, Pastor, I need to get a new car. And honestly, the type of car that I, I'm thinking about getting, I decided I don't want to do that because I don't believe it would please the Lord. Because I asked myself, why do I want that car? Do I want it because people think well of me? Is my heart given over to materialism? Is there things in my life that are more important than Jesus? And he goes, I just decided I'm just going to keep what I got. And I thought to myself, that's Christian maturity right there, right? Like nobody, nobody says to themselves who's not a mature Christian, says like, things like, oh, I'm just so concerned if I get that new car, will I be giving in to the idol of materialism? Like the average person doesn't think that. But a mature Christian does because they think, hey, if I'm trying to be like Jesus, does that new car help me be like Jesus? And why do I even want that? And I begin to examine my own heart in light of God's word. And then I do things like seek godly counsel and talk it over with somebody to say, hey, help me to diagnose my own spiritual condition because I can't trust myself. Wow. That's Christian maturity. That's growth. That's what you and I need. And here's the thing. If you struggle just to show up to church on Sunday, you're probably not concerned about the type of car that you drive yet. That's okay. We're going to help you grow in Christ's likeness and be mature. But sanctification is for those who desire a mature conversation, uh, a mature relationship with Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.27, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs as you stand fast on one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
mature followers of Jesus are always looking for other people to join on the journey too. Hey, who can I bring along with this? I was talking with uh, my friend Trey, who serves on our staff now here. We were talking yesterday. He talked about when I got saved, he said it lit me up like a Christmas tree and I wanted to change. He said, I started praying for my wife that my wife would be saved. Then I had the opportunity to share the gospel with my parents, and my parents got saved. A Christian who's really been changed by the gospel, they want everybody to know. Hey, who's more people that I can get on board with me? Hey, I got family members that don't know Jesus. They need to know. And I know for me, at least, whenever I really got on fire about Jesus, I went about it in a very carnal way. I began to say, like, you need to get right with Jesus. You're a sinner. That's a sin. You can't do that. I was, man, my heart was there. I was so misguided and immature, though. But I think as our love for Jesus grows stronger, we want more people on the journey with us. That's what Paul says in verse number 15. Those of you that be thus minded, let's stick together because we need to have the same mind of pursuing Christ's likeness. Again, that's why discipleship is so important for us because it's not a 14-week class where you fill in notes. It's about putting somebody under your arm and saying, hey, I'm going to show you what it means to be a follower of Christ. For me, God got a hold of my heart and changed me from the inside out to where I said, I want to give my entire life helping people to follow Jesus the way that God changed my life. I want to spend the rest of my days, as long as I'm on planet Earth, bringing people to Jesus and helping people on this journey. And you said, well, yeah, that's easy because you're a Christian. You're a pastor. I did that long before I was a pastor. I did it when I was just a fired up Christian. I want to spend the rest of my days, even if I work 40 hours a week at a desk job somewhere else, I want to spend the rest of my days on planet Earth bringing people to Jesus and helping them to know Him. Because it changed my life, and I know it can change other people's lives. It changed my marriage, it changed my kids, it changed my branch of my family tree. That's how big of a deal this is. And I want as many people as possible to follow Jesus with me. That's the idea behind it. And so mature Christians want to bring other people along the journey. Four quick self Diagnosing questions, first of all. Are you intentionally pursuing Jesus Christ? Are you on purpose looking for ways to interact with Jesus? Prayer time, personal worship time, the music that you listen to, the people that you spend time with, your study of God's word, your reading of other helpful Christian books that will help you grow in your walk with Christ. Are you really doing that or are you just kind of coasting, hoping that it will happen? Well, if I show up to church enough, it'll eventually happen. No, it won't. <laughs> Anybody can sit in a seat and stay awake. That's not pursuing Christ's likeness. Pursuing Christ's likeness means examining my heart in light of God's word and asking God to change me. How committed are you to your growth and sanctification? Are you really committed to it? Is it something that you think about and work towards every single day? <laughs> Somebody sent me a quote by Usain Bolt last week. I don't know if it was a real quote or not, but it was interesting. You know how those internet quotes go, right? He said, I don't know, again, I don't know if he said it or not, I check for the veracity of the quote, but it was an interesting thought. He said, I spent my entire life to run for nine seconds. I thought to myself, it's interesting. You take a guy who the length of his race is nine seconds, but he spent his entire life training for that nine seconds. And then I thought, but how many Christians spend that kind of time training for the Christian race? It's probably embarrassing to actually hear how many actually train for their Christian race, or how many are just winging it? How many just show up on race day, overweight, out of shape, untrained, hoping to make it, just going to wing it? Man, don't do that. Be intentional about your growth. And, and here's the thing. If you say, well, pastor, I don't even know what that means. Great. Let me know. You and I will sit down and we'll talk and we'll figure out a plan for your life. 
I met with a guy this past week. We sat down for like two hours and talked about Christian growth and areas of his life he wants to change and he wants to be different. And when he left, he said this to me. He said, Pastor, I'm sorry for taking up so much of your time. And I go, dude, this is what I live for. I live for helping people find spiritual fruitfulness in their lives. Now, if you just want to come and, and talk shop and argue about the weather and, and talk politics and stuff like that, I don't have time for any of that. Go do that with somebody else. You want to talk about pursuing Jesus? I'm your man. That's my job as a pastor is to guide you into spiritual fruitfulness. That's what I want to do. If you say, I don't even know where to start with this, good, I'll help you. We'll put together a plan. But what you can't do is just wing it. Hope it gets better. Because you have to be intentionally pursuing Christ-likeness. Next, are you allowing your past to dictate your future? Whether it be past failures that you have of, hey, I'll never be good enough because X happened in my past, or um, my past is so messed up that God can never use somebody like me. Are you allowing that to limit what God wants to do with your future? Or maybe from the flip side, you say, hey, I, I was a really good Christian in college, and I think I'm just kind of coasting on the fumes of that. Hey, I remember in high school, my walk with God was really hot, but it's not so much these days. Are you allowing your past to dictate where you are? Because the Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm just looking from today forward. Everything in the past, I've forgotten that. I'm just pushing forward to the future. Final question, who are you on this journey with? You're just rolling solo. You're going to struggle. But if we, if we view the Christian life as a journey that we're on, <laughs> my wife, I love her to death, but in a car, she's the worst follower in the world. <laughs> worst. Like, you know, she's like, oh, I'll follow you to wherever we're going. I always have to stop and pull over and wait for her and stuff like that. And if there's, you guys know this, if there's ever like a yellow light and she's the one who like stops when it like even looks like it's going to turn yellow, she stops. And she's like, what the world? And she's so, she's a terrible follower. But here's the thing, if I get a little bit ahead of her and I can't see him in my rear view, you know what I do? I stop, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And then she catches back up, and then we go for a little while, and she falls back a little bit further behind more cars, and I slow down for her. You know why? Because I'm, we're on a journey together, and if she falls behind, I'm going to wait for her. The problem is, when I run off and leave her and do my own thing, and she's doing her own thing, but if she doesn't know where she's going, she gets lost. In the Christian life, you need people you're on the journey with that when you fall behind they're looking for you look if you miss three weeks here at who we call and nobody calls you it just goes to show that you haven't made the types of connections that you should just know this this guy knows <laughs> i got people checking your id when you walk in the front door right <laughs> like i know if you're not here i know but here's the thing if other people don't know that means you haven't made any connection you're not on the journey with anybody. You say, well, how do you do that? We have small groups that meet throughout the week, three different nights out of the week that we have small groups. You need to join a small group. You say, well, Tuesday nights is the night that my favorite show's on. Again, we're talking about priorities. If knowing Jesus is important to you, you'll set everything to the side to pursue Jesus Christ. That's why I challenge you to do that. But you've got to be on this journey with other people. Paul, Paul's on the journey with other people. Here's the dude sitting in prison by himself, Chained to a Roman guard, what does he do? Hey, somebody give me a sheet of paper and a, and a pen. i got to write a letter to a church that I haven't seen in 10 years. Why? Because he realized he wasn't on this journey by himself. He was on this journey with them. He wanted to encourage them and help them. Paul needed that encouragement as well. And so, again, if you're on the Christian journey by yourself, link up with somebody else that can help walk the path with you. It's called discipleship, and it's the most important thing in the world. Really the most important thing in the world is knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven's your home. You know for sure that you're saved? If you died today, are you 100% sure that you go to heaven? I'm not talking about 50% sure, 75% sure, mostly sure, 
100% certain can you know for sure that if you die today, heaven's your home? 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know 100% certain that you're on your way to heaven today if you're willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus and be saved. But for those of us that are Christians, like I say, when I was a nine-year-old boy, I have to admit from nine to 22, there was zero Christian growth, zero sanctification, zero Christ-likeness in my life. But I'm telling you this, once I got a hold of the real stuff, I didn't want anything else. And I want to challenge you to grow in Christ's likeness. Desire to be changed by the word of God every single day. That's where the good stuff is found. Let's live like that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.